Welcome to the New Stewards Podcast, where we speak to believers all around the world, find out what they are doing to combat the changing climate and how their faith drives them in their work. My name is Ilias. I have been working in sustainability for over eight years, and I believe we were put on this planet as stewards or trustees. In Arabic, this means Khalifa. In this podcast series, I hope to discover what it means to be a steward on earth so we can inspire and enable millions of Islamic sustainability leaders. Today, my guest is Ashraf Goma Ali. He is on a mission to make the financial system a source of mercy for humanity. He is managing director of Ihsan Advisory, which works at the intersection of Islamic finance, Islamic moral theology, the sustainable development goals, and positive impact. Over the last 15 years, he has worked in many different financial institutions in either a consulting or supervisory position in nine different countries. Among those is his last position, in which he was responsible for the development of the CIMB Group's positive impact framework. In this, I believe Ashraf is a global pioneer. Welcome, Ashraf. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much, Elias. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. Thank you. So to dive in, in into your personal motivations, why is sustainability important to you? So first and foremost, as as a Muslim, uh, and you know, a Muslim being someone who seeks to submit, you know, to that which God wants of us, right? Sustainability. I mean, if we were to probably define sustainability before we talk about why it's important. The, probably the most common definition uh, that people use is the one in the Brundtland, you know, commission, you know, which is a development that uh, uh, that does not the development where, where the development of the of the current generation does not deprive the future generation, right? And I think this is important. This is in line with with our faith because you know we believe that God placed us on this earth, that He created the earth, He created everything, He sustains everything. But he put us here as a as a representative and as someone who is responsible, you know, to actually take care of the earth and to, in a sense, use the resources that are here in the way that is in line with his commands. So, so in that sense, this is how we strike a balance. And the and then the word that we use for that in Arabic is adil or you know or justice, which is putting everything in its proper place. So everything has a proper place. Human beings have a proper place in the world. Animals, trees, rocks, streams, air, everything has a proper place. And our role is to make sure that we are striving to put everything in its proper place. And the moment that we veer away from that and we are put, we are not using the things correctly, we are not putting it in the proper place, then we fall under, in Arabic, the opposite of justice, which is vul, which is injustice, right? And we're going to be responsible for that. And God is just and he does not, he, he loves the just and he does not like injustice. And we believe that even animals who are treated inju- you know, unjustly will actually question that there will be a, you know, a great court proceeding on the day of judgment when everyone will be brought back and everyone will be responsible. And even the animals can bring a case against human beings, you know, that they were treated unjustly. And so, this is our responsibility to walk in this earth humbly and as a representative of of justice uh, and so that's really sustainability is for me it's part of that process uh, and an attempt to try to you know discharge my responsibility as a representative of i don't know if i can say representative of god but but you know as as a responsible creation of god yeah, so that that would be my answer. And how conscious are you of that in, in your daily life? Can you maybe give a couple of examples how someone observing you for a day would see that in your daily actions? Ever since I became more conscious, I would say, of sort of ramifications, you know, of sustainability from this kind of framework. So, I mean, let's say when you look at eating and drinking, I mean, as human beings, we do that a lot, right? I try my best, you know, and, you know, and I really owe a lot of it to my wife who made me a lot more conscious of, of these things to be careful where I, you know, how I eat, what I eat. Um, for example, eggs, try to eat, have, you know, uh, free range eggs. And then when you learn about how chickens are treated in the factory farms, 
you realize that, you know, God would not be happy with this. You know, these chickens have rights. These chickens have souls, right? These chickens, you know, will ask you, why did you treat me like this? Similarly with milk, for example, you know, we try to go to get our milk directly from farms that we know treat the animals well. And also when you become more aware of how, you know, modern dairy farming is done and, you know, the various chemicals that are given to the cows in order for them to, you know, produce more milk and the pain that they sometimes go through in many cases, right? You realize that these cows are animals, they're creatures, and they will also ask, they will, they will say, why did you do this to me? You know, I don't want to be part of something that is part of an industry as much as possible that's being cruel you know, to, to animals. So I think that's one of the main ways I would say that I'm, that I practice it is being aware of what I eat because part of the Islamic, in Islamic tradition, um, what you eat and the way you nourish your body has a direct relationship on your spirituality because, you know, the body and soul for us as Muslims, we believe that they're one, that they're linked. They're not like completely separate. And so, you know, you, in order for your prayers to be answered, one of the things you have to do is be careful what you eat, and that has an effect. So probably what we eat and also being moderate in your consumption as well. This is also part of the part of the sunnah, part of the way of the that the Prophet peace be upon him, Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him taught, to be conscious of that, not to overeat. And also in the way that um that we train our children, alhamdulillah, you know, I've been blessed with four children, and it's such a big responsibility. How are you going to train them? So, I mean, one of the things that we try to do is curb this, you know, consumer, you know, consumer mentality, this consumer materialistic mentality. So, you know, we don't have, they don't have many toys. Uh, we don't, you know, buy too many clothes, uh, try to make do with less. We try to train them, you know, to hear the word no. You know, when they just have various wants, you know, I want this, I want, I want, I want, I want, we say no, because... What makes us human is our higher self, not our bestial self. You know, every creature, you know, eats and drinks and reproduces. That's not what makes us essentially human, but it's our intellect, our ability to, you know, to control those lower urges. And so, you know, we try to also, you know, raise our children to be people who will be conscious to think, who think. And I mean, thankfully, by the grace of God, that's that's happening. So, I mean, I remember we were walking down the stairs to our apartment and my, you know, son, you know, he saw we had bags and and everything. And he was like, be careful. There's a snail. Don't don't step on the snail. Being conscious of, of that, not killing, you know, if you have a bug in the house, you know, not just killing it, but trying to take it and put it outside and being conscious that these things are alive. And actually, you know, as Muslims, we believe that that they they worship God that they actually remember God. Even, you know, plucking a, um, a leaf from a tree when the children want to go play, when they want to take a, a branch or something, we say, take a dead branch, don't take a, a living branch, right? So I think all of those being, I think being conscious of those types of things, also the, the typical things, you know, conserving water and things of that nature. Also as Muslims, you know, we, we wash a number of times, we make wudu. And so the, the way that the Prophet Muhammad taught is that you should conserve water even if you're on a running stream. And so we try to also, when you turn on the water, don't turn it on too too high, teach the children that as well. Those are some of the ways uh, that uh, also, you know, just being, trying to, you know, not produce a lot of waste, but I think that's a challenge. That's that's probably one of the bigger challenges, you know, uh, when you have a big family and you, when you see yourself taking out the trash and there's a bag of trash and you're thinking, how can I make this less? And you feel kind of embarrassed, you know, taking out big, big, you know, garbage bags. But uh, I think another thing uh, for us, I'm living in Istanbul right now in Turkey, is eating locally. So um, we're very blessed that they have a very, you know, bustling uh, agricultural industry here. And around Istanbul, there are farms. And so once a week, farmers, they come and they bring their produce. So we tend to eat things that are in season. So you find, you know, when it's when it's cherry season, I mean, cherries are plentiful, they're everywhere, they're super cheap, right? And then when it's not cherry season, you don't see cherries, you know, and that's fine. You know, uh, so eating in season, uh, eating things that are that are that are grown locally. You know, yeah, I mean, those are some of the ways that uh, that we try to be sustainable and follow. Actually, I would say that we try to be sustainable and, and I would say follow the sunnah uh, because actually all goodness. And if we want to know the most sustainable in the human being ever, 
it's the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He gave the example of how to live in a way that is that strikes the perfect balance. And sustainability is all about finding that balance. He is the ultimate balance. So that's what we try our best. Uh, may Allah help us to <laughs> increase that. I hope your your actions will be uh, will be accepted and you will be rewarded for it. It seems and and it sounds like. To you, almost, living a sustainable life is a way of life, right? Very interesting how you do not make a distinction between living sustainably and living as a Muslim. To you, A and B are, are the same. Is, is, is that a, a correct summary of the many beautiful examples you just gave? It's being very aware of who you are, of your impact on yourself, on your surroundings and, and your future generations throughout maybe everything you do in a day. Yeah, I mean, I would say that. I would say that definitely. Because the thing about Islam, it is a comprehensive way of life. It is it is a way to elevate one's consciousness to higher levels, to be acutely aware, provides a, a framework to be aware of everything, of the life in everything, actually. I mean, even stones, our belief, have life. You know, it's not only animals and plants. And God created everything. And God is sustaining everything. Truthfully, even the idea of, and this is counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of people who work in the sustainability space, that even having children, and ultimately it's God who creates the children and God who provides for them. But having children is an act of sustainability. There's a movement now that, that says the best thing you can do for the environment is not to have children and, and that, you know, uh, it, it pales. I mean, the impact that you can have by doing that pales in comparison to anything else, pales in comparison to that. That's the greatest thing you can do. And I know Certain, you know, people who are in the sustainability space who have decided that they will not have children. And I think that that's actually very detrimental. All the religions typically teach, you know, the concept of be fruitful and multiply. And that having children is a good thing. If God blesses you to have children, it's a good thing. And, and it's good for humanity, having children and raising them well. A lot of times this, this, this concept of taking only half of the equation. So someone looking at having children Aside, you know, apart from the importance of raising them properly with the proper morals and etiquette and, and understanding, just like people, they attack uh, dairy farming, right, uh, at cows, but they don't, they, but they don't look at the the way that the cows are raised and the way that the, that it's done, or they attack, you know, meat production, and they don't look at how it's being done. I think this is one of the issues, one of the big differences, I would say, between the more sort of the the sustainability space. Where, where God is not present in the discussion and the sustain, sustainability space where God is present in the discussion, where when God is not present, I think that things get very dark and, and very and, and really almost hopeless because you feel like there are, there are enemies attacking you from everywhere. You know, there's a, a story by one great Turkish philosopher and theologian, Sayyid Zaman Nursi, was a very famous um, scholar. He passed away shortly after the, the, the downfall of the, of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the Turkish Republic. And he basically gave, a, gave a, a, an analogy of the importance of a connection with God. And he said that back in the times of the Arab Bedouin, if you were out in the desert, you would need to affiliate yourself with a, um, with a chief or with a powerful, of a powerful, powerful tribe in order to have protection, you know, amidst all the dangers in the desert. And so... Uh, he said there's one person, He, as soon as he went into the desert, he found the chief and he affiliated, affiliated himself. And then whenever any um, bandits would come or, or, or other, uh, you know, warring tribes or whatever, he would mention that I'm an affiliate of this chief. And then they would leave him alone and he had a, a good time in the desert. But another person refused to affiliate himself to anyone. And so he was robbed and he was hurt and, and he just suffered tremendously. I feel personally that that when you you know look at the world as completely barren and you know something that we are also, you know as if it came out of nothing and and hopeless and you have these types of things when you don't connect to to God but when you connect to God you have a moral moral framework that you can hold on to and it makes for a much more hopeful world so I mean that's my long answer you know to uh, living, how Islam and sustainability really work uh, hand in hand. It is a long answer. I do feel you you covered both the consumption patterns as well as the moral framework and, and a way of thinking in that. It is indeed true that, that many current sustainability discussions are quite dark. They are about a horrible future. It's, it's out of our control. Uh, and, and I think here you're saying that affiliate yourself with, with a God, that that future still 
is beautiful because you believe. You have been a, a finance professional your entire career. I believe you started with a bachelor's in finance and, and have been in, in the finance field ever since. And I would like to dive into the link between finance and sustainability. Before we do that, I would like to ask you what Islamic finance is. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Elias. Uh, so Islamic finance is something that I've been trying to define actually throughout my career and different people give different definitions. When I was in Malaysia, I was seeking to find a definition that would resonate with everyone, whether they're Muslims or non-Muslims from every country, from every faith tradition. Um, and so the way I, I look at defining Islamic finance is through the goals of Islamic finance. So I'll say Islamic finance is basically financing. And I think people know what financing is typically whether it's banking or whether it's investments, you know, uh, providing money, taking money from those who have excess funds, savings, and, and then basically providing it to those who have financial needs, uh, and entrepreneurs, consumers, to intermediating between the savers and the, and the spenders, basically. So, but then where the, how do you make that Islamic? What does Islam have to do with that? Islamic finance, you know, is based on Islamic transaction law or Islamic moral theology. And the Islamic moral theology is really overall goes back to the concept of maximizing benefit and utility and minimizing harm. And then when we talk about what are the benefits and what are the harms that Islamic moral theology kind of focuses on, it makes them sort of primary and universals. There are five main ones. Uh, the first is protecting and preserving faith, and, and which is, we believe, to be the, the essence of, and the basis of morality. So faith is one. The second is preserving life. Uh, the third is preserving the intellect, which is by which you were able to function, by which we're able to know God, by which you know we're able to protect life, the intellect. And then the, the fourth is protecting family, which is, the, of course, the very essential uh, unit of society. And then the fifth is protecting property. And then uh, some also add a sixth, which is protecting human dignity you find that this is a common thread throughout all of Islamic moral theology and that these values are universal. So when I define Islamic finance, I give this long definition. I say it's finance that seeks to maximize the benefit and minimize the harm to individuals and society, particularly through the focus on the universal values of preservation of faith, preservation of life, preservation of intellect, preservation of the family, preservation of property, and then preservation of, uh, of human dignity. That's kind of my full sort of comprehensive definition. And I mean, it's an attempt. It's, it's a human attempt. So you try your best because we live in this world and we have to make choices. And there is, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find any, anything that is like purely evil or purely 100% good. You typically things are, are, have some level of mixture. And so you always need to be making these, these calculations. So that's kind of how I define Islamic finance. In, in your last position, you've been working on building a, a decision-making framework, a holistic framework for sustainability within a large financial institution. Could you take us through that process? Taking through that process, when I, so I joined CIMB and CIMB is the second largest financial institution in, in Malaysia. Uh, it's an institution that is actually, um, has branches, it has uh, various entities and banks throughout Southeast Asia, as well as in London. And so it, do, it does Islamic banking in some jurisdictions, it's particularly in Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, and the UK. Um, but then it has conventional banking in all the other Southeast Asian uh, jurisdictions. And when I joined, so I joined as the head of Sharia, so basically responsible for the you know, Islamic moral theology uh, Islamic law compliance because it's an Islamic bank. So it's, it's limited by that. One of the first things that I did, and the reason why I joined that particular institution was because I noticed that they wanted to go beyond the minimum level of compliance to the Islamic rules and go and take it to a step higher, right? And so that was really inspiring to me. And so one of the first things I did when I went there is I, I wanted to dive deeper into the Islamic perspective on particularly environmental sustainability. And I found that there was a, a fatwa or a resolution 
by the uh, OIC, the Organization of Islamic Conference uh, body that is dedicated to researching things that relate to Islamic law and Islamic moral theology. And the OIC, for those who don't know, it's basically like the UN of the Islamic world. So it has basically all of the Islamic countries uh, as members. I think maybe some, maybe 50 some members or something like that or less. Uh, and then they, they, each member, you know, proposes a, a, uh, someone to sit on this council to discuss these moral issues and theological issues and, uh, and then present recommendations. So there was a, a particular resolution on the environment that was a number of years back, but it was very, very strong. And I think particularly when, when we were discussing, you know, issues of like CFCs and, and hole in the ozone and all that type of stuff. Basically, they said that anything that is harmful to the environment, that represents a net harm to the environment, and that basically um, may deprive future generations of the ability to use the natural resources, basically unsustainable, is prohibited in Islamic law. And they and then they specifically spoke about biological weapons. They spoke about chemical weapons. They spoke about uh, releasing harmful gases into the atmosphere that creates holes in the ozone. And then they basically said that these are all prohibited based on the universal principle in in, in Islamic and in, in the Islamic moral theology that prohibits harming anything. You know, do no harm. That's a principle in Islam. Uh, do no harm. There should be no harm done, nor there should there be any reciprocation of harm. So this is a statement of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And so they said that, you know, Islamic countries should should do everything uh, in their power to to um, bring effect to this uh, resolution, whether it's in the educational system, whether it's using the criminal system, criminal justice system, whether it's using the, you know, broadcasting, media, all of that. Bring everything to bear to do this. So I presented this to the bank and basically said that since we are, as an Islamic bank, we are responsible to follow the rules of, of Islam, this is a rule of Islam, let's follow it and let's put in place a framework for that. Let's um, ally with partners who can support us and give us the tools to do that. So particularly UN Global Compact, I recommended that we sign on to that because it's a, it's a document that is actually created for the private sector. And I reviewed those documents and I found that there is nothing in there that is against the Islamic moral theology principles. Uh, also, the, the PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment, I suggested that we also um, sign on to that and basically, you know, build these, uh, this, these, this network to um, see how other people are doing this. And then we go on a journey to do this. You, you notice that the, well, the more traditional Islamic financing world and the non-Islamic existing ethical frameworks were quite separate from each other. And, and you saw that they could coexist or even uh, enrich each other. So you made the suggestion to adopt some of these declarations on sustainability. Yes, yes, yes. Because, you know, we have a, a, a principle that that which is necessary for the fulfillment of an obligation is also necessary. So I think uh, this, these principles of do no harm are always present in the minds of the scholars. And if you look at the screening methodologies that, that are used in Islamic finance, they really revolve around do no harm. So we don't, for example, we don't finance any sector that has a net harm on society. So alcohol, gambling, pornography, uh, weapons, you know, that are, you know, destroy, you know, various types of weapons. So you find that we don't finance these types of activities. We don't invest in them. We don't finance them. We don't insure them. And then also, you know, uh, from an Islamic perspective, things that relate to gambling, you know, are also prohibited and also penalty interests and things like that. Uh, those things are also prohibited because we believe that they have a net harm on society. Now, on the environmental side, I wouldn't say that the scholars were were oblivious to the environmental issues because it's very, very well rooted in, in Islam. You know, we have a we have a tradition of the Prophet, peace be upon him, that says that a woman entered will enter hell um, because of torturing a cat. And the story goes that a woman took a cat. She was a believer. She took a cat from the wild. She imprisoned it in her home. She didn't feed it. She didn't let it go out to hunt for itself. And she starved it to death and it died. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that she will go to hell because of what she did to that cat. And then on the flip side, we have a, another tradition that says a woman from the previous nations who was a believer, 
but she was a prostitute. She uh, saw a dog in, in the desert or somewhere that was so thirsty, it was licking the, the wet sand. And so she went down into the well and she actually uh, filled her shoe with water and she gave water to the dog and that all her sins will be, were, will be forgiven and she will enter you know, paradise because of that act of kindness. So this is, this is our framework, right? But the issue is then how do you do that? Having the technology, the technology in a broad sense to, to determine, you know, where, what type of, of things are environmental practices are harmful and how do you strike a balance between what's, what's, uh, you know, sustainable, what's harmful, you know, because you have to cut down trees, right. To live. And that's, that's not inherently bad, but cutting down, you know, entire forests uh, and not replanting them or things like that, you know, would be bad. So how do you, where is the balance? So I think, what I put forward is that we have tools now. The, the global community has started, started to develop tools that help us to identify where the balance is. And now if we have that tool, those tools, as Muslims, we should embrace them. We can tweak them. We can examine them, uh, particularly within our moral framework. But we can use those to try to minimize the harm. So I wanted the bank to, to do that. So I mean, basically, then we we went on this journey, and there was a there's a there's an entire case study that done by the RFI Responsible Finance Institute talking about our journey. Uh, inshallah, I think I can repost it on my website, extendadvisory.com. Uh, by the time this podcast comes out, I'll have it there. But we basically presented this to the board, and then the to show showing the board that this is strategic, that this is the way forward. It's not just about protecting yourself from risk, but it's also about embracing you know a, a better way of doing business it's just overall better better for your employee satisfaction better for your relationship with your stakeholders it makes you actually even more strategic in the way that you think so the board you know we're very blessed that the board uh the group embraced this wholeheartedly and it was something that was led by the islamic by the islamic bank even though the islamic bank represents a minority portion of the entire group's business we felt very blessed because really what motivated us were Islamic principles. It was, you know, I was involved, but mainly it was my boss who was the CEO of the Islamic bank, uh, Mr. Rafi Hanif. He was really the pioneer who kind of pushed that forward. And he was really motivated by his faith, you know, to push that forward based on what he was saying. You've mentioned a couple of times that there were lessons you, you could learn from traditional financial institutions that helped you create the, those decision-making tools. What advice would you give those traditional financial institutions they can learn from, from the Islamic moral framework? Because what you're saying here is that those two different uh, sources of knowledge uh, enrich each other and create a new framework for strategic long-term decision-making. Yeah, um, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a great question because I was blessed to be part of. We were a my bank, you know, CIMB. We were a part of the core, the core members of the uh, United Nations Environmental Programs uh, uh, principles for responsible banking, and uh, it's a very beautiful document. I encourage people to take a look at it, Google it. Um, those who are affiliated with financial institutions to actually encourage your institution to actually sign on to it. So, you know, we did review it and everything we found was in line with uh, with Sharia. And so I was fortunate to write this, you know, a few lines in there uh, covering Islamic banks. And and basically what I wrote was that Islamic banks are institutions that seek to, you know, maximize the benefit, minimize the harm, um, particularly uh, in relation to the preservation of faith and, and life and and, uh, and uh, family and and intellect as well as as, as um, property, and then I said that the SDGs can be a, a useful tool um, in in determining kind of how to do that, you know, a type of technology. And not that the SDGs are perfect, but but as a tool for us to say, okay, we want to preserve life, and can we look at the SDGs that relate to that, and and they give us some useful metrics that we can choose from, and and maybe focus on some of them. But I also put something in there that which was not accepted in the document, <laughs> which is that conventional banks can also learn from the way that Islamic banks screen, do screenings, because we, we recognize, like I mentioned, there's no pure evil, you know? And so we have certain level of levels of tolerance for, for various types of activities. Um, for example, when it comes to uh, investments, 
we have these things that are prohibited, but we have like a 5% tolerance level for these prohibited activities. Just because to have something that is 100% pure, typically it's, it's, it's very difficult to have that. And if you insist on 100% purity, then it may lead to a bigger harm, which is you will have an uh, undiversified portfolio. You will find yourself heavily putting all your eggs in one basket. And then when something happens to that basket, you lose everything. And that's also a harm. So it's all a balancing act. Could you give an example? So there, there is up to a 5% tolerance for non-compliant activities or for, for harmful activities. Okay, so we, I mean, there's no distinction, I would say, from a Sharia perspective, like non-compliant is harmful on a net basis. But so, for example, uh, if you want to invest in, let's say, the S&P 500, right, the U.S. The stock, the stock index. So the S&P 500, I know you're in Netherlands. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys have your, your index, you know, your uh, main, you know, Borsa, uh, Borsa index where people invest in. So S&P 500 is basically an index uh, with, that has the top 500 companies, the largest companies in the U.S. And a lot of people invest in those companies. And it's, it's a diversified portfolio, meaning that you have some companies, you know, in different industries, some in the technology, some in the banking, some in the food Uh, some in, you know, transportation, logistics, all of these different things. So typically there is, you try to have with um, companies in your portfolio that are somewhat negative cor negatively correlated. So you have, for example, you know, if gas prices go up, then companies that are manufacturing would lose, right? Because their raw materials are, are you know, now are, are more expensive, but maybe the companies that oil and gas companies will make more money, right? And so you will be invested in, in manufacturing as well as oil and gas, right? So you have some kind of balance. So as much as possible, you try to minimize the risk uh, in your portfolio. And that's considered good practice. If, for example, we said that oil and gas is completely prohibited, right? Then and you have a portfolio that is doesn't have that. For example, I'm just giving a very simple example. Oil and gas is prohibited. So in that case, you don't have any oil and gas in your portfolio, When oil, like currently, when oil and gas increases significantly, all of the companies you have are manufacturing companies, they all lose. So now you find your portfolio crashing, right? If you were able to invest in oil and gas as well, you might find your portfolio losing, but not as, not as, as, as severe as, you know, if you had a diversified portfolio. So when it comes to the Islamic screens, one of the biggest problems is interest. Because as Muslims, we try to avoid interest as much as possible. And so every company almost will have money in the bank and gets interest on their money. Now, of course, interest rates are low, so it's not as bad. But when interest rates are high, it's even worse. And so if you were to say, if any company has even one penny right, of interest, I'm not going to invest in that company. You might only find your investable universe to be like 10 companies in the world, you know? 20 companies. And it's also, you have to invest all your money in those 20 companies. And then if those companies go down, and they might all be in a similar industry. If they go down, you lose everything. So that, that's also not prudent and it's not practical. And, you know, in Islam, we don't believe that God wants us to have a, you know, overly difficult life. There is some difficulty. That's the nature of the world, but not overly difficult. When things are difficult, we find that there's always some ease that will come in to balance things out. I hope that answered the, that answers kind of the, the question. Particularly the main area of prohibited income typically is the interest. Other, other areas, you know, normally if this, the, 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 the sector issue like gambling, it, it won't typically be that a company has like 5% of gambling income or 5% of like pork income or 5% of, 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 you know, something like that. Typically it's interest. But then sometimes we have, we might be financing a restaurant, for example, and, or a grocery store. And the grocery store, by and large, everything they sell is, you know, fine and good and even halal from an Islamic perspective. But they might have a section in that grocery store where they sell pork. And so then the question comes, you know, are we able to finance this company? Are we able to, if we own a building, can we rent to this building, this, you know, this space to this grocery store? That's where we have to kind of look at how much we can tolerate, how much we can't tolerate. And what is the cost of having like a, a hard line approach? So we, anyway, we wanted to put something like that in the document. We said that, that the sustainable banks can learn, but they, they didn't want to put it. I'd, I'd like to dive into consumer activism. 
there is there is this debate going on in the sustainability field between either voting with your wallet or actively lobbying for system change. And people are saying that it doesn't really matter if you vote with your wallet because the, the amount of money you uh, as an average consumer are controlling is insignificant in comparison to the system. To me, I find this, this debate to be... I, I feel this debate does not apply to me because I believe even my small actions... God willing, will be seen uh, and noted down. So it does matter if I make a conscious decision with how I consume, like you you explained in the beginning. From from an Islamic perspective, how how do you look at voting with your wallet? Do you believe that that voting with your wallet is part of making those conscious decisions? And how can we do that in a more beautiful way? Because it is quite difficult, right? I think that the elaborate explanation you gave in the beginning kind of illustrates how much effort it can require to live in a sustainably and, and conscious way throughout your entire day. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Uh, I mean, it's a great question. And I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I think I face these types of issues every day. So, for example, I have a two-year-old daughter and she, she really loves dolls and babies. So she's been asking if she wants a baby, she wants a baby. And so it's like, okay. So then we're thinking, okay, we want to get her something. Uh, but we want to get her something that is high quality. We want to get her something that is sustainable. We ended up buying, um, you know, this Waldorf doll that is knitted from Etsy, from a local, you know, like artisan here in, in Turkey, right? I mean, you can go and buy something, you know, from the store made of plastic and then, you know, put it in their mouth and God knows what type of, of chemicals are, you know, on that plastic, right? But, you know, is that, once again, sustainable? When, when we, wanted to buy, we wanted to buy a desk, and we actually found a, a local carpenter who had, you know, he had this, they call live edge wood. It's like actual trees, you know, and instead of, you know, various pieces of, of things put together. And the person was actually a religious person. You know, he took this as a spiritual pursuit. You know, actually, when we went to his his workshop, we knocked on the door. He, he couldn't answer us because he was praying, you know. And then so my wife said, we want to get it from him, you know. And, you know, he made it and, and then, you know, he brought it to us. and. I mean, it was, it was, you can tell that it was a spiritual act for him, right? So I think, you know, with these types of things, you know, voting with your wallet, I think we have to always remember the human element, right? We remember the human element and as much as possible, I think being as close as possible to the person who actually made the thing, right? And ideally knowing the person who made it and ideally, you know, buying from people who, you know, put their heart and soul into things who, and even better, who do things with consciousness of God. You know, when they're doing the thing, they're, they're, whatever it is, they're doing it with consciousness of God, right? I would say that that's important. And, and I would even say that, that those things have more blessing. I mean, as Muslims, you know, we believe that there's a concept called blessing, right? That, that when we use things, we want a certain utility out of them. But that utility is created by God. And, and there are certain rules, metaphysical rules, that God puts in place that some things will have more utility than others overall. And that, you know, difference in utility is basically blessing. So, so yeah, I mean, I think this is one. I think the other one, like I mentioned about, once again, being conscious of how things are done. If you're buying animal products, be aware whether the way these are being produced. And if you have a farmer, you know, from an Islamic perspective, you know, when you even move the animal, if you want the animal to move, you're not allowed to hit the animal excessively or to harm the animal. You would only do what's necessary, right? I once asked uh, my teacher back in Malaysia, I said, if you, have, if you buy meat or, you know, from a farmer who is kind of somewhat abusive to the animal, but it's slaughtered according to the Islamic rules, right? Which is, you know, using a, a very sharp knife and, and reciting the name of God uh, before it's slaughtered, it does the meat become unlawful? In any way, he said, no, you can still eat it, but he said it will definitely have less blessing. So, so if you want blessing, right, then you want something that even the way it's produced is produced in a, in, in a good way. So, I mean, that's the thing, you know, the real utility is in the, is in the blessing. I mean, I think that hopefully that answers your question, you know, the idea of, of, of voting with your wallet. I think you want blessing in whatever you consume. And whatever you do, we have a verse in the Quran. It says, 
that cooperate together in that which is good and that which is, you know, and in, in God and being conscious of God and don't cooperate in ism. Ism is basically wickedness and Uduan is transgression. So when it comes to sustainability, you know, there is some transgression that happens, whether it's transgression on the environment, transgression on animals. You don't want to be party to that as much as possible. And also we believe that God is in control and you will be asked about whatever you do. You're not necessarily, you know, responsible to change the world, but you do, you do what you can do for yourself. And, you know, God may reward you as if you change the world, or you may make a prayer and that prayer will be answered. And the one who controls the world will change the world for you. You know, so so this is the difference between a God-centered paradigm and a and a godless paradigm. And alone with us, the the potential for change is is endless, right? If in that God-centered paradigm, it is not just limited to your own actions, but it is, well, you, you, it is up to your to your intentions and and your effort and your well, the, the the level of consciousness and 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 spirituality you put in into your way of living. Yeah. In in some of your work, you had an explanation and a framework where you go into your dean and your dane. That really, really, I'd like you to, if, if you want to, explain um, that difference between your, your dean and your dane and how that applies uh, in your daily life. And maybe also in your work, right? Because I don't think the two are, are separate from each other. Sure. I mean, I think it's a beautiful uh, question. And I mean, this is something really that I benefited from uh, the in in Malaysia. I, w- I was very blessed to study with some of the students of a great uh, Muslim philosopher, uh, Sayyid Naqib al Atas, an institution called uh, Cassis. Uh, and and one of the things that I learned is the way that Sayyid Naqib al Atas kind of sets a framework for kind of the relationship between God and human beings and our moral theological framework, which is that. You know, when we look at the world, when we look at the fact that everything changes, we realize that all of this could not have created itself and that there has to be an unchanging, right, uh, volitional agent who is all knowing, who is all powerful, who basically created this, who is not who is not defined by this, who is not, you know, contingent on this world, you know, but that he is the one who's actually determining everything. And that when you when you do that, when you when you come to that type of realization, that effectively that there is a God, right? Then you realize your need for that God and you realize that he's the one who created you. You realize that you cannot sustain your own existence even for a moment. And so when you start to realize those things, right, then you feel indebted to that God, right? You feel indebted. And then the issue is, okay, what do I do? Because human beings, by the the way that they are being created, the way they've been programmed, is that when someone does something good to you, you want to repay them. You want to at least thank them. So then the question is, how do you repay God? How do you thank God? You cannot repay him. How do you thank him? And and this is where the concept of the, the, the rules come, that God sends prophets and that those prophets explain, this is the way that you that you say thank you. This is the way that you, that you um, I would not say repay, but this is the way that you, maybe if we were to use the word repay, repay the debt that you owe God. And that is basically our entire life. It's an attempt to try to repay that debt. When I uh, was trying to develop a framework for positive impact investing and positive impact financing at you know at my previous institution, we scanned maybe a hundred different financial leaders in sustainability, and all over the world, and we found that that nobody has a a, a sort of a metaphysical or a a philosophy on why sustainability is important, why positive impact is important. Besides saying that, you know, our stakeholders are important and, and we want to have a positive impact. But why? Why do you need to have a positive impact, right? You have shareholders, you need to have a positive impact on them, make money for them, right? So we, we try to apply this to the corporate person. So we said that as a, as a bank, as an institution, as a corporation, we would not exist without the support of, of our stakeholders and the broader society. Because if you look at the company, the corporation, it's a creation of the society. And then we said, we would not exist without the support of our stakeholders and the broader society. 
And then as a result of this, or in recognition of this special obligation, so then I use the word obligation, that realizing that creates an obligation to the one who quote unquote created you, right? We seek to maximize our positive impact in everything that we do. Why maximize? Why not just have a positive impact? Because you want to maximize it because if you're not maximum, if you have, you know, if you can have, if you were to measure negative impact is minus one on the, on the, you know, Y axis minus, and then positive is plus one and going up. If you have the ability to get to plus 10, which is positive and maximizing your positive impact to your stakeholders, your shareholders, the society, but you suffice yourself with plus one, there is a difference between plus nine that you have decided, uh, I don't really want to do it. I don't really care to do it. I have better things to do. Even though I can use my mind, use my resources to try to up that, right? I don't want to do it. You're not wanting to do it is not fulfilling the obligation that you owe. You are falling short of that obligation. So you have to seek to maximize. How can I maximize? And, and we, so we created this framework where we looked at, you know, what various reports we looked at the SDGs and then we looked at various reports from uh, government, quasi government, private sector on where the government needs help in achieving the SDGs from the private sector because they can't do it all. So we looked at the opportunities in the new economy, um, uh, whether it's renewable energy, all of that. And so we, we, and then we looked at the core competencies of the bank. Where is the bank strong at? And then we said, wherever these intersect, where these all intersect, that's where we should focus, right? When we talk about positive impact, uh, for in, our, in our positive impact business, where we allocate a certain amount of capital for positive impact, focus on that. Because there, we are doing something that will make money for our shareholders. We're doing something that's using our core competencies. We're doing something where the government themselves are saying, we don't have the capacity. We need the private sector to help here, right? Or else we're not, we're going to fall short of the SDGs, right? And, and, and that's what we should focus on. And for me, as a Muslim, I look at that as a type of collective obligation. We have in Islam, in Islamic moral theology, we have individual obligations that individuals have to do, whether it's praying, fasting, or whether it's staying away from, you know, harming others, you know, uh, fulfilling your social obligations. Let's say these are individual. And then we have collective obligations. Collective obligations, the typical one, you know, if somebody dies, they have their body has to be washed. They have to pray over them somebody in the society has to do it. If, they, if nobody does it, everybody gets a sin. So to me, these areas are collective obligations for the, for the corporation. Individual obligations don't do harm to follow the rules of, of Sharia, follow the rules of Islamic moral theology. Collective obligation, positive impact. Help to fulfill the needs as much as you can of the society, which without which you would not exist. Okay. That, that is a strong framework. And and quite simple also to 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 apply within your like as a, as a thinking framework. I like the simplicity of it. Um, that that is beautiful. Thank you so much for answering my questions. I I'd like to give you the the opportunity maybe to leave us with the final note or a final message for our listeners. I I know you've been pioneering in this field. Where, where can people follow you? Find you? Uh, see more of your work? Alhamdulillah. Um... I mean, I think the final thought is that we have to look for beauty. I think we have to look for beauty uh, when it comes to everything. You know, God, we have a tradition uh, that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said God is beautiful and he loves beauty. And and this is something that I notice here. I'm in Istanbul. It's it's a very beautiful uh, society. Uh, I don't know if you hear the adhan in the background, but uh, the call to prayer is being made. And even in the way that they make the call to prayer, it's very beautiful. And and part of beauty is 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 also functionality, you know. So even in the call to prayer, um, in the morning it's done in a particular way. In the in the evening it's done in in a, in a particular way. In the afternoon it's and every you know the beauty of it revolves around uh, what is the need for that particular time of the day. So I think you know connecting to beauty uh, is very important. Connecting to to nature. You know, I think as Muslims, we, we have to, when we the call to prayer, we have to actually connect to nature, you know, five times a day because we actually, the, our prayer times are linked to uh, the shadow and the sun and the rising and the setting. Um, we have to get out of our, of our concrete jungles. 
We have to get out and we have to look at the stars. We have to look at the animals. We have to look at the plants. We have to think. And, and I do believe that we need to connect to God. I, I think that it is, it is a necessary. The, 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 the least sustainable thing is living a life that is not connected to God, connected to the creator. You know, it would, it would lead a person down a road, I think, where they make moral choices that are in actuality immoral, you know, and, and, and actually unsustainable in the, in the ultimate balance of things. So everything has to revolve around that. Uh, I mean, as a Muslim, I'm saying this as a Muslim, and I invite people to do that. And the way that you connect to God is connecting to his world, connecting to this beautiful universe that he has created and thinking about it deeply, that this cannot have come out of nothing. All of this perfection, all of these systems. And I think once one does that, then you can start to even observe nature and look at the natural systems that are in place. And try to mimic those that they call it biomimicry. You try to mimic those, you know. Um, uh, and and when we see the secrets in in the way the world is created, then I think it will also give us guidance on how we should be good stewards of this world. And then we have to always ask God for help. You know, my my two year old who uh, who wants the babies, she has a a form of remembrance that she says. Uh, or basically, she has a song. It says, you know, God made me and God helps me. God made me and God helps me. And I think that's our motto. Really, God made us and God will help us on this on this journey. Jazakallah khairan. And finally, where, where can people find more of your work? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, I think by the time, it's, it's, a new, it's a new organization. I think by the time this podcast is released, I'll have uh, the website up. It's called Ihsan Advisory, I-H-S-A-N advisory uh and they can find me on linkedin you know ashraf goma ali a-s-h-r-a-f and then g-o-m-m-a ali a-l-i and uh you know i am at the service of all your listeners and whoever wants to do something good we cooperate together to do good things thank you we will definitely put this put links in the description of this uh, this episode thank you so much uh, ashraf and uh, i hope to see you very soon again inshallah Thank you so much, Elias. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Stewards Podcast. I hope it has been both beneficial and encouraging. Please take the time to reflect on how you can live in a more sustainable way. God willing, together, we can build a better future for ourselves, the Ummah, both now and in the future, and be rewarded in the hereafter. And God knows best. If you want to share any reflections, please send an email to newstewardspod at gmail.com. That's all one word. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.